You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I so love having conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me, getting into their life journey, well, as much as we get into, <laughs> and, you know, sharing a little bit more details on how they got to where they are today. Um, you know, the good, the sad, the struggles, all of it. My hopes in this is that by you seeing behind the shiny new stuff that people do, that you see that they're a real human that has struggled, that likely still is struggling. And I hope that it empowers you to get out of your own way and to not have shame for your life journey, your path, all of the things. On today's episode, I have David Poses. He just came out with a book, a memoir called The Weight of Air, a story of the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery. Um, so we talk about his life journey that got him to writing this book. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting story. Well, story, life. Again, it is a memoir, so you can go read about it in the book. We don't talk about everything that's in the book, but meaning like we didn't talk a ton about his life because, you know, he's really passionate about what really happens to people struggling with um, addiction, specifically heroin addiction, what he was and how he sees that we can make changes. Um, I think it's interesting and worth taking a listen. And, you know, I feel like everyone is different and different things work for different people. And I thought there was a, like, yeah, he brought up a lot of interesting points. Um, so yeah, hang in there, listen with us, go check out his book. Uh, please subscribe. <laughs> and leave me a review if you haven't. And if you do leave a review, screenshot it, send me an email at podcast at yourjoyologist.com and I'll send you a gift from my product line. Here we go. So I like starting with kind of from the beginning, like what was childhood like for you and especially teenage years? Because I find, you know, like there's so much pressure, I think, in your teenage years to either like you're like you're trying to like stand out but fit in. And what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? And like you're supposed to like suddenly have all these answers, it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, thank you for um, inviting me. Uh, it's so nice to be here. Um, so you don't want to know about like my birth in a hospital and because um, I don't remember this. Yeah, start from the day one. Yeah. Day one. Let's hear. No. Right, yeah. So like, <laughs> it was really dark and then the lights came on. Um, I was naked. It was really weird. Uh that's pretty much all I remember. I learned to speak English pretty well um, at a young age. <laughs> so yeah, um, I mean, I was a very sad kid. Uh, I did before long before I knew um, depression. You know, was part of my vernacular. Um, I, some of my earliest memories, other than of course being born, was um, you know being like four or five years old, and, and my mom driving around with my mom, and she would say like, "Why are you so sad? Don't you want to be happy?" Um, wow. and yeah, and it was really, um, you know, my, my parents got divorced when I was four. Um, my brother is almost three years younger than me. Um, so he wasn't really fluent in, in English yet, um, <laughs> for us to have these conversations, but, um, 
you know, I, I, I didn't know why I was sad. I didn't know how not to be sad. I was so ashamed of being sad because I couldn't just be like, snap out of it. You know, you're happy. I want to be happy, but I'm not able to make that happen. And I just, I didn't know how to talk about it. Um, so my mom started taking me to therapy, uh, weekly therapy sessions when I was four. Um, yeah. Good for your mom. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, especially back then that's, you know, Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, 1980. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so, I, you know, I, even in therapy, like, I was too ashamed of my, like, shitty feelings to uh, talk about them with my shrink. But, um, you know, in the meantime, I, I, like, I was lying in bed at night, like, wishing for a terminal disease. And I just, I felt like mm. I'm at the bottom of the ocean, and I'm surrounded by all these people in, like, full scuba gear, and they're, you know kicking their flippers and breathing oxygen from tanks. And I'm just singularly focused on looking like I'm not drowning. Um, so, uh, so I, you know, I mean, that was basically, uh, how everything was. My, my psychiatrist figured out that, uh, I was depressed at some point. Um, by the time I got to high school, I had tried every conceivable antidepressant known to man at the time. Um, nothing worked. Uh, and, you know, I mean, 49% of depressed people are unresponsive to antidepressants. So I guess, you know, I'm part of that group. Um, but, uh, so my friends at the time, um, well, hold on, let me back up a little bit in fifth grade. Um, I grew up during the, you know, the dare generation, uh, just say no to drugs. So, um, in fifth grade, this cop came to my school for a, a dare assembly and he said, um, uh, you can't drive a car if you drink alcohol. Um, pot makes you stupid. Uh, cocaine makes you angry. He told this very scary story about a kid from our very own town who took LSD and, um, thought he was an orange and peeled off his skin. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and, you know, I was at an age where that all seemed perfectly reasonable and I had no trouble believing it. And the problem with that is that I knew I had no use for alcohol because my lifelong ambition was to drive into a tree as fast as I could. Um, you know, I thought I was stupid. So pot was out of the question and I was angrier than, than any, you know, 10 year old had any business being. So, um, you know, cocaine, I had no use for cocaine. So the cop said, and I knew I would never take a hallucinogen. Um, and I'm 45 years old and I never have, uh, and I know that that story is bullshit. (laughs) um, So, um, uh, so he said the worst drug is heroin. And he said it was originally a painkiller but it's so strong that you don't have any feelings. It kills your feelings too. And I, you know, he didn't say that like it was a good thing, but I heard like, this is exactly what I need. And so as the antidepressants failed, um, you know, I I was thinking about heroin. I mean, like that, that experience was like the first time I ever felt like this can help me. You know, I wasn't aware of any other uh, solution. I mean, you know, fifth grade, like I was 10 years old, um, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the suburbs um, of New York City. But, you know, I mean, finding heroin was like looking for weapons grade plutonium. Like it just wasn't, you know, I didn't know where to get it. So, um, so high, you know, by high school, like my friends were all, you know, smoking pot and drinking and, um, you know, whatever. And, and everywhere you went, like that stuff was, you know, you got to do like I, I, I got drunk once when I was 15. Um and I, it was so miserable that like, I haven't done it since then. Um, I smoked pot a few times. I just, I like, I don't like feeling intoxicated, you know? And I, I, uh, it just totally doesn't appeal to me. So, um, so like by the time I was in 10th grade, I just, I felt like, I mean, I was 
suicidal. And I thought like, um, I mean, to deal with myself, like if I can find some heroin and it does what I think it's going to do, I don't care that it's illegal. I'm in, you know, all it takes because it's going to, this stuff is going to keep me alive. And, um, and if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, then I'm out. Like there's nothing else I can do. And from that time, from fifth grade to like, you made this deal with yourself in 10th grade, did you end up like looking more into heroin? Like, were you researching or was it just what that yeah. cop said that like stuck with no, you? I okay. I mean, the, the, the cop turned me on to it, but like. Honestly, and how he described it, I can see as adults, like a lot of adults. Yeah. Like life is hard. Like, oh, okay. I can not feel oh. anything. Like, not that that's a good right. thing, but I can see where you're like at that stage of already going through your life. Like, and especially cause then there's so much focus too. It's like, that sucks as a kid to have deal with sadness, but then yeah, like that it feels like you're then feeling like a failure, I'm guessing in many ways, because your mom's, why are you so sad? And then she, you feel maybe shame because then, oh my God, I have a sad son and I can't help him. And like, and you so badly don't want this because you know, like, you know, like for yourself, but also your mom, like, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Like living like that. And it's sort of like being, what about this? Okay. This doctor, are you better yet? Is this okay? Can we, like, I'm guessing she's probably trying to do things to make you happy because how painful for a mother also to go through this. Yes. Yes. And knowing that it was painful for her, I, I hid the sadness as well oh, as I could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and uh, I mean, you know, I think like we have this kind of uh, societal thing of, of we think, you know, bad people use drugs and all of that kind of, you know, stereotypical crap. And like the fact is like people who are in pain use painkillers, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's simple. Um, so, uh, so I, I, I met, um, I had a friend who it turned out was a heroin user, um, unbeknown to me. And, uh, when I found out, I, I asked him to give me some heroin and, you know, everything else, like, I, you know, I'm like walking around parties with cups of beer that I'm like pouring out into the plants because I don't want anything to do with it. But like, I was like begging him for heroin and he's just like, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Like, absolutely not. I'm not giving it to you, you know, whatever. And this went on for like a couple of months. But he was someone that was regularly doing heroin or he had done it? No, he was, he was addicted to heroin. Oh, he was addicted to heroin. And so he's telling you, I'm Don't not going to give this to you. Got right, it. Right. Um, and I had, you know, I mean, your question of did I research it in the meantime? Like, yes. Um, a year later... I fell in love with the Sex Pistols, and when I found out Sid Vicious was a heroin addict, that was uh, sorry, you're not supposed to say addict. A person he, he used heroin. Um, I, uh, you know, I fell in love with Sid Vicious, um, and all of my favorite like artists and writers. Like you know, it, obviously it wasn't a coincidence, but at the time I was like, what a coincidence! <laughs> you know, Jean Michel Basquiat likes uh, heroin, um, and these these guys all died. Uh, so. <laughs> Um, well, so eventually, they all died, but then I'm sure it also was like, oh, wow. And they're sort of like creative geniuses. So does that make you even be like, so right. Yes. The heroin will maybe like unleash something in me too. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I had always like, since, I mean, I, I wrote this autobiography in second grade or first grade. Um, and I, I fell in love with writing. Like I, I, I wanted to be a writer from that moment. I I've always written stuff like this book is, not the first book I've written, but like, I'm, I'm so afraid of failure that I never did anything with anything. So I have like oh, a wow. bunch of, um, you know, novels and short stories that nobody's ever seen, um, or a few people have, but, um, so, uh, so eventually I said to my friend, Rob, um, you know, look, I'm, I'm going to kill myself if you don't give me some heroin. So hand it over, you know? Um, and he agreed. And so I took my first hit at 16 and, like the moment the, you know, 
kind of coagulated mess of, of uh, powder and, you know, snot started dripping down my throat. Um, like something got to, like the lights came on, you know, and I felt like this is how normal people feel. Um, I'm getting emotional for you. I mean, but, but that's what it was. And the thing about it is like, we have this idea that like, you know, bad people or it's an immoral thing. And like all of the things that we think about these drugs, like nobody's abusing painkillers. We're all hurting and that's why we're using them. And, you know, opiate receptors uh, regulate your uh, regulate physical pain and emotional well-being, right? They don't know if you have a prescription. They don't know if you're using something illegal. They know that dopamine and serotonin are flooding in um, and, and we like that. So we're not going to hurt right now. Um, you know, so, so I was able to keep it hidden probably because everybody thinks nobody can function on heroin. Um, yeah, that's which is totally, important. yeah, that's totally. And I even like have this memory of at one point friends that I was with that, like I was at some club and a friend of mine, like locked me in the bathroom with her and did it. And I have this like memory of it, but that my brain is still like, but that doesn't make sense because all I've ever been taught to think about heroin is like somebody slumped over, right? you know, like yeah. they take a hit and then they're like, sort of like passed out. Right. But I was like, but I remember this friend being at like a dance club and doing yeah. it. Like, so I was like, I, it, so yeah. I couldn't like, I was like, is my memory wrong? <laughs> no, it's, I mean, and, and the thing about it that's so interesting to me is that um, the people who say that. Are, you know, I, I think everybody knows that doctors prescribe legal opioids, that there are many, many, many stronger opioids than heroin that are prescribed to people who not only can function on them, but take them specifically to function. And we know that. And nobody ever says like, oh, my God, grandma's on OxyContin again. Like, watch out. She's going to steal your VCR. Uh, you know, um, and uh, and and so, um, you know, and also I, I, I mean, you know, look. We also think that because people like me didn't go around saying, hello, I'm on heroin. I thought you should know because I'm trying to bust this, this stereotype. Please don't tell the police. Um, it's okay. Uh, you know, I mean, like I, I had a job um, in after college. I, I worked in advertising and um, I had this white uh, button down shirt on and I, I shot up in the bathroom and. Uh, went right to a meeting and there was blood on, you know, like the, it was like blood was like dripping onto the inside of my elbow in this meeting. And, uh, somebody said, um, you know, uh, Oh my God, are you, are you bleeding? You know, are you okay? And I looked and I saw it and I was like, Oh my God, I just shot up in the bathroom and everybody laughed. And then I said, um, no, you know, I, I, my doctor had to take blood for some kind of thing. And like everybody believed that, you know? Um, so I was able to hide it. No problem. I guess is the point. Nobody knew except my friend Rob, and I got involved in like the you know New York City nightclub scene of of Limelight and USA and Tunnel and all of that kind of stuff. I, I was promoting parties, so like those friends knew, um, nobody else knew. But I hated the lifestyle. I mean, the idea of like you know you're getting ripped off and beaten up, and you never know what you're getting, and you're lying to everybody. Like it totally sucked. I mean, so like heroin, uh, you know, killed my self-hatred and, and all of you know, that, but it, it gave me, or addiction, I guess, and, or maybe not even that, like stigma and laws gave me new reason to hate myself. Um, so, uh, so like a couple of weeks before my 19th birthday, I tried to stop a bunch of times and it just, I, you know, I, I didn't want to. But from, so um, you're about to say your 19th birthday, but like, so also that was your, when you first did it, 
He's 16, 16. And so then like how quickly does that then start? Like how often are you doing it? And is it enough that it sort of is like, oh my gosh, this is like how I want to feel. And like, do people notice even like, does your mom like, wow, like not like, not you're like, wow, David, you're like, oh my gosh, maybe he's going to be okay. Like that sort of thing. Like, oh, he has an addiction problem, but like seeing positive, like, yes, I think. And the, the problem with that, that's so dangerous is that you know, um, well, I'll tell you in a minute when we get to the rehab part, but, um, so, you know, opioids are physically addictive, right? So like, it doesn't matter whether, you know, you got it from a doctor for a legitimate thing, or you're buying it on a street corner because you're a, you know, moral deviant, doesn't matter. The drugs don't know if you have a prescription, they don't know whether you're killing emotional pain or physical pain. Um, they multiply your opiate receptors with every dose no matter who you are, I mean that's just how it works, and that's what that's what makes tolerance. Um, so your tolerance goes up as you have more receptors that need to be saturated. Um, so uh, you know, like there are other drugs, um, you know, stimulants, cocaine, meth, all that kind of business. There's no physical addiction. So like you can use meth for a thousand years, and then you just abruptly stop one day, and you know you're going to be sad about it. Uh, uh, you know, I mean it's it's very uh, the the withdrawal is is entirely psychological, you're not going to be sick and, you know, throwing up and, and, um, you know, just a giant disgusting mess like on opioids. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I wished that, uh, I wish for death a lot of times, but, um, you know, opioids are, uh, they won't actually kill you in withdrawal. Um, whereas alcohol is more addictive and can kill you in withdrawal, um, with very high odds of, of dying. Um, so, you know, I mean, alcohol can also shut down um, all of your organs, which all other drugs combined can't, but that's fine. It's legal. So it's got to be safe. Um, so uh, it's legal so, and it's legal, like in unlimitless, like you can like go buy an entire like bar. <laughs> I mean, the crazy thing is that like I, I I'm, I'm on buprenorphine. Um, I hope I don't seem like I'm nodding off and drooling right now, like some people would have you believe. But um, so uh, so you know, it's a controlled, uh, substance. So you can fill it every 30 days, a prescription every 30 days. Pharmacists of course have just, uh, you know, they have discretion to fill early. If, you know, my doctor sometimes calls it in a couple of days early, whatever, but they, they won't do that. Right. Like, even if I'm travel, I've had situations where like, I'm going on a business trip and I have to fill it, you know, a couple of days earlier. And they're like, not a chance. Um, even though they can. So, um, you know, my drugstore is next door to a liquor store where I could buy, you know, lethal amounts of booze all day long. Um, but that's not a problem. Uh, so, um, right. So, so I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop or I didn't want to stop. Anyway, I just got sick of it. My mom went to Florida for a week and I thought like, this is perfect. I gave Rob my car and my wallet and I just, I put myself into this kind of, you know, no exit cold Turkey situation. When at that point too. So like when we're saying you started and then you sort of like, yeah, you were like feeling Better. Like even like, yeah, maybe people are noticing that, but then does it quickly like, okay, I am addicted and you know, like you're feeling. I was addicted before I started. Got, I mean, right. like I was addicted in, in, in fifth grade. Um, I mean, I needed it in fifth grade. Um, so, you know, if addiction is defined as uh, compulsive use despite negative consequences, the negative consequences that I experienced were all due to the stigma and laws surrounding heroin. Like, it made me feel better. I mean, you know, we, we, 
Um, well, anyway, so I, I went to rehab, I guess is the point. Um, okay, uh, but yeah, so you started at 16 at 19, you were like, okay, I got to stop this. Right. Um, yeah. And I was shooting up and you know, all that. So, um, uh, so during, in the middle of this, uh, you know, cold Turkey situation, I ended up, um, calling my father for some reason. I hadn't talked to him in a year. Um, and he came over and he, and, um, so the book starts, where in that scene where I'm in the worst kind of withdrawal, um, at my mom's house. And, uh, and I, I, you know, so like the drugs, there's a little bit of heroin on that first page. As far as everyone in my life knew until two years ago, that was the last time I used drugs. Okay. So yeah, the book starts, you're 19, you're putting yourself into like self-imposed Yep. Getting clean, which doesn't <laughs> go the way you thought it would. Um, no, it didn't. Yeah. But so, and from there you go to rehab and everyone in your life thinks that that's where your heroin journey stopped. That's where everything stopped. I was happy and sober. I mean, you know, two years ago, uh, a little, well, I told my mom, um, I told a few other people, but I told my mom, I wrote this article that the LA Times accepted uh, for as an op-ed. And my mom hadn't read the book yet. She didn't know anything about this stuff. And like the night before the thing was going to be published, I, I gave her the book and I was like, you got to read this. You have like 12 hours. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so nobody, nobody had any idea. And so in rehab, um, I get to rehab and, the, it, you know, it's like an AA based faith and abstinence. You have a disease and all that kind of business situation. And I just, I couldn't reconcile it with um, everything that I knew to be scientific facts about how the world works. Um, you know, meaning like, I mean, my mom had had cancer and my, my counselor's telling me that, um, I have a disease and I'm going to be dead in you know five seconds. If I don't put my life and will in God's hands and work the 12 steps of AA, that's the only way to achieve remission from this terminal disease that I have right now. And, um, and I'm just like, well, you know, I mean, God, okay. So God is helping, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, uh, everybody who's on drugs and alcohol, but not people with cancer. And I chose to stick needles in my arms, but it's not my fault because I'm powerless, but I'm responsible for everything that I did. And even though I have no control, I can somehow decide to put my life and will in God's hands. Like that's the little loophole. Um, and I don't know God very well, but I'm, you know, so, so like these, you know, like when medical experts don't have medical credentials and they tell you, you know, magical thinking cures, um, that's actually the definition of quack medicine. Like if you look it up, like that's exactly what it says. So, and I knew that and, and I pushed back on it and they're just like, it works. You know, you're in denial. Um, this is addict mentality. And I told my counselor, it, it took a ton of courage to tell him that, um, depression addiction, isn't the problem. It's a symptom. Um, depression is the problem cure my depression. I have no use for this stuff. I would love to not use it anymore. That would be great. And he's just going like, that's not true. You're lying, you know, rationalizing his addict mentality and whatever. And it's like, you know, he said, uh, heroin has no medicinal value and, and whatever. And it's like, I mean, I was rationalizing because my fucking rational, my, my rationale was rational, you know, like yeah. painkillers kill pain. So, um, you know, so he, he, these guys knew that my sucks history. Because yeah, you're not just like, rational you know like it'd be one thing to try to rational but you are saying like no it's like 
no, I have depression. Like, help me with the depression. Like, that's what, can you help me with this? The depression, that's yeah. a real thing that I've actually even been seeing doctors and have yeah. prescribed medicine yeah. since they're yeah. like, no. no. Wow. No. Yeah. So, you know, and at the time, you know, I, I knew that um, the stereotype of like homeless Vietnam veterans who like to murder people are heroin addicts. And people like me are not. So like, you know, I thought I was the exception for a minute. And, you know, this is like 1995. So it's not like there was an opioid crisis going on. Like I was one of three kids out of like 50 in rehab um, who were using any type of opioid. Um, Everybody else was, you know, whatever. But like we have this idea that like we find out somebody's on drugs and we go, oh, my God, you got to stop that right now. This is a massive problem. Any drug use is problematic. We know that alcohol isn't a problem for 90-something percent of people who drink. We assume the drugs are a problem for 100% of people who use drugs, which is just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, like in the litany of things like grandma on OxyContin and our perception of all this stuff, you know, we, we know that you can't wake up at 7 o'clock in the morning and guzzle down rum all day and function. Um, and everybody will know anyway because you're going to stink like rum. But we somehow think that, you know, you can't possibly function on these drugs that you know, other people function on and there's no smell. So how is anybody going to know anyway? Um, so, um, so my counselor said depression was an excuse and they, they knew my history with alcohol and pot. And, you know, I mean, like I, I had tried cocaine a bunch of times, like I I smoked crack if I had to stay awake to get to school the next day. Um, it was like a utility, basically. I didn't drink coffee. Um, it was overkill, but whatever. So, uh, they told my mom that, um, she had to get rid of all the alcohol in the house, including hand sanitizer. Because when I come home, I'm going to be desperate for a high and I'm going to abuse anything that can be abused. And I was just like, I totally get why like drinking soap is, you know, abuse or misuse or whatever. People in pain use painkillers. No, 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 you're, you're full of shit. Like that's not what's going on here. It's an excuse. So like it turns out that um, 95% of, uh, of people in rehab for, or uh, sorry, 95% of opioid users, um, illicit opioid users, have um, some type of uh, mental health disorder, whether it's depression, anxiety, trauma, you know, whatever it is. Of that 95%, 3% are treated for, or sorry, 97% are treated for addiction only in rehab. So 3% are treated for anything other than addiction. And these traditional, you know, 30-day inpatient faith and abstinence-based places, um, you know, AA is not medical at all. There's no science or medicine in it. Um, even AA agrees with that. So, um, the, the counselors, these experts that don't have any kind of medical credentials, they're not qualified to treat or diagnose mental, uh, mental health issues. They can't prescribe medications for, uh, you know, I mean, any, any kind of physical or, or, you know, mental health condition, they're, they're unqualified to treat. Like they just are, that that's how it is. Um, it's probably worth mentioning that addiction is a medical condition also. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, um, I mean, we would like, if you take this model and you cross out addiction and put any other condition in its place, it's ludicrous. Like nobody would, the whole world would know, like, this is insane. I'm going to cure my cancer by joining a support group and praying. Like, that's not how shit works. And everybody knows that. But somehow you say like, oh, my heroin addiction, like, no problem. I'm just going to ask God. and That's going to be fine. Um, so like, you know, and when I told, when, when my parents, when we had this conversation about the drugs, like nobody ever asks, uh, I mean, I was too ashamed to tell them why I used heroin. 
um, or I was too ashamed of the heroin until I started using. And, you know, they didn't ask. It's just like, this is bad and you have to stop. If anybody ever thought to, to ask, like, why are you doing this? Not this shit is so bad, but why? And anybody said, oh, because I was going to fucking kill myself. This, uh, you know, stopped that. Um, oh, well, then, gee whiz, we might want to think about focusing on that stuff. Trisha here, bringing you a brief interruption to tell you about one of my favorite new things. It's the My Soul CBD Bath Bombs. I think I've tried every single different variety right now, and they're my favorite thing. I never got bath bombs until I tried these with the CBD in them. Oh my goodness, they just make it so much more enjoyable. My skin feels so smooth after I get out and my body feels so good. You likely know I have fibromyalgia, so I live with a lot of different aches and pains that I'm able to mostly manage with my lifestyle and how I take care of myself, but I need a lot of things for daily maintenance. And these bath bombs have been a game changer for me at the end of the day. And then also I am shocked at how much taking internally CBD has been changing how I feel. I take either the gummies or the drops from my soul CBD in the morning and in the evening. I sometimes forget and it's okay, but it really has been helping my body feel less anxious, feel less tense. I sleep better. I'm pretty shocked, to be honest. <laughs> I love My Soul CBD because they are completely THC free. They are organically farmed. They are gluten free certified. They are third party tested for toxins. So the quality is amazing. You can just see from all of that how much care they take in making their products and making sure that you are getting what you are meant to be getting. So go check out the bath bombs. It's kind of like a fun little treat, but I don't think it needs to be a treat. Uh, I'm using them a couple times a week, to be honest. The drops in fun flavors and gummies go to my link at mysoulcbd.com backslash claim it and you'll get 15% off all the products mysoulcbd.com backslash claim it. The link will be in the show notes. And again, feel free to send me a DM at underscore Trisha Huffman to ask me more about my products, their products, my products now, because I only share about things that I truly use and love. All right, let's get back to the episode. Are you telling me that in the rehab process, not a single person asked you, why were no, you abusing? No, no, they told they told me. <laughs> my mind was, is blo- my eyes. As you were talking, I, you people, you know, listening are going to says my eyes have been so big. Like while you were talking, they, because they I'm are, like, wait a minute. Yes, but this stuff is is so baked into our collective conscious that we just believe it. I mean, you know, there's all these studies on. Um, I mean, you you know, you can go to JAMA and read about this all day long. Uh, you know, buprenorphine and methadone. Um, reduce the risk of overdose, death, and relapse by, you know, 79%, right? Faith and abstinence-based treatment increases the risks, those same risks in equally dramatic fashion, right? Doing nothing except telling your kid, 
please don't use alone. Give them a bunch of Narcan. You have a better chance of being alive um, when you like, uh, I, right. So you get out of rehab after a 30 day stay. Um, faith and abstinence, you know, jacks up your odds of all that stuff uh, within three days of leaving. Whereas this plan of, you know, please just don't use alone and here's some Narcan increases your odds of being alive in six months. And you know, what is Narcan? Uh, Narcan is, uh, um, it, it reverses overdose. Um, so it, it can, you know, it basically brings people back to life. So it would be like after, it, is it? You, you overdose and you're dying. And, and we, somebody we, can give you the Narcan. Yeah, I, I, I have some somewhere. Um, they got it, but it's not like something you're taking daily. It's like in no. case of... Yeah, um, it's a it's a nasal it's like spray. Plan B for overdose. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is Narcan. Um, okay. You, you, uh, somebody else has to stick it in your nose because it's like an in inhaler, outside. right? So somebody yeah. could put it in your nose. Wow. Right. Um, so yeah, but like you know, we these these things that we believe are like if you just take it. it, it it's not like you need like to be some kind of scientist or doctor to know this stuff. Like it just requires a little bit of logic. Um, if bad people use drugs, then it makes sense that the drugs cause all of their problems and God can help them. If people in pain use painkillers, pain doesn't stop when you stop taking painkillers. Like we know that, right? My foot got chopped off. I got some morphine in rehab. They said, Oh, you're gonna you're you're in pain because of the not because of your foot, uh, um, but because you're taking all this morphine. The only way you're gonna feel better is if you stop taking the morphine, and then your foot will feel better. Right, but My you foot- haven't actually healed what started you, right. like while you're taking the pain medicine. <laughs> Nobody, I mean, you know, my foot didn't get chopped off. I'm just making an yeah. example, but like, that's um, you know. If, if I had, so I said, you know, depression and all that, and it's not, I mean, look, depression is a degenerative biological illness. Like it's a real thing. Um, you know, the symptoms might be invisible because we're all so fucking ashamed of it. But, um, so, you know, my counselor, my counselor wouldn't have said, you know, it's, it's like saying like your kid is on decongestants. That's what's making him congested. If you see him congested, it means he's on the decongestants and you've got to make him stop. Right. So what they told my mom was, if he's depressed, it's because he's on heroin, right? Um, yeah. So that was really helpful. And, um, you know, I mean, she, I mean, this is, this is all in my book. And like, you know, a couple of years ago, or for a very long time, I mean, while I was keeping all this a secret, like my views that I've had since, you know, the beginning of time, um, they're more evolved now, but they haven't changed. And what has changed, though, is and, – and the facts are still the facts. The science is still the science. But addiction science used to say, you know, um, or, or, you know, addiction used to be perceived by most people as um, an incurable moral defect, right? So the idea that AA would help you makes perfect sense. You ask God for help. If he says you're worthy – you know, it's the same thing as bubonic plague in the Middle Ages. Like, God gave me bubonic plague – Please, God, help me. If I live, it's clearly because God wants me to live. And if I die, then it's because, you know, God doesn't like me. So I get better start praying. 
Um, when it also feels like if it's that, then it means like you can't not stop. So like, yeah, you need to be going to meetings like every day for the rest of your life because it's this, yeah, incurable moral, moral thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, and AA would have you believe that, you know, it's not your fault and, and it's not a moral thing and all like that. But like, I mean, you know, my mom with her, with cancer, she got involved with um, Gilda's Club, which is, a, you know, an international support group for cancer survivors. I mean, I'm quite certain that if her oncologist would have said, forget about the chemo and the surgery, just go to the support group and pray and you'll be fine. Like that wouldn't have worked. Um, you know, but also like everybody knows that that's what my mom does. Whereas, you know, AA is anonymous, which doesn't exactly scream. You have nothing to be ashamed of, but you know, totally like don't. Yeah. Like I even, I've had, um, past guests before. Like I think Amy Dresner, who wrote the book, yeah. My Fair, which love, yes. love Amy, love that book. Yeah. And I think it was her too that like, I don't know if it was her or somebody else in my podcast that were like, oh, like that she wasn't even, she was hesitating to say like that she even had gone to, like, oh, but it's anonymous, so I can't say. And I was like, wait, you're not even allowed to say that you're in. No, you can, but I mean, was, you know. I don't know I, if it was her or somebody else, but yeah, like somebody had this sort of hesitation of like, well, I'm not even allowed to talk about that I go to meetings or. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, the anonymity actually works in their favor because there's, you know, it's, it's hard to get like empirical data from them because who even knows who's in charge um, other than Bill W. who's, you know, long dead. But, um, you know, if, if you look at like AA um, doesn't actually make any sense whatsoever, but there's definitely something to be said for the camaraderie. And, you know, if accountability is, I mean, you know, I have, I have a friend who um, uh, is a recovering alcoholic. And, um, because I hate alcohol so much, like I, I was never around drunk people a lot. Like I just don't hang out with people who drink. So he called me, um, like a couple of years ago and I thought he had a stroke. Like he was just raving and sounded like a crazy person. It was two o'clock in the morning. And like, I almost called the police. Like I really didn't know what to do. Um, and so later on when he called back and he was sober and he said that he had relapsed, um, we had this conversation about AA and we, and you know, I, I realized that, you know, alcoholics, alcoholics, anonymous, um, each type of substance affects our neural pathways differently, right? So like, you know, if you've never tried cocaine and pot, you know that they're not the same, right? Um, but the AA and, and, you know, faith and abstinence rehab programs, they say a drug is a drug is a drug. That's why I was going to chug all the Purell in the house because I'm just desperate for a high and I don't care what it feels like, which is like, that. that's crazy. Um, and, and we should know that. And the cop told me that in fifth grade, but in rehab, I'm being told the exact opposite. A drug is a drug is a drug. If you ever use anything else, you're going to be dead in five minutes. Like you're, you're going to be addicted to everything. I mean, they did such a number on my mom that um, even today, I mean, you know, over the past couple of years, since I sprung all this on her and tried to you know, explain how things actually work to her. She understands, like she's much better informed than the average, you know, person, I think just by virtue of being my mother. Um, but she, it's, it's really scary how easily she can slip back into, you know, that thing. Like I was so, um, I have really bad allergies. Like I, I started getting bad allergies as I got older. Um, so like summer is especially rough with like, the, you know, the grass and the trees and the, like, I, I'm allergic to cats and dogs now too, which like, you know, that never was the case. But, um, so like I was just having a really hard time breathing and like I sounded so stuffy and my mom was just like, um, what are you going to do about that? And I had actually researched all of the, um, I forget what, what I ended up using, but like of all of those, you know, anti, uh, 
you know, allergy things. I was looking for something that would not keep me awake, but wouldn't make me sleepy. Like what's, what's the, has the least chance of doing anything bad because like I have a lot of stuff to do and I can't be out of my mind or sleepy or too awake or not get enough sleep, you know? So I can't remember what I took, but I took it one day and my mom said, Oh my God, you sound so much better. Um, this was like, this was like a few months ago. And, um, and I said, yeah, I took a, is it Zyrtec? I don't know. Whatever it was. And, um, and she's just like, uh, are you going to keep taking that? I'm like, yes, this shit totally works. If I have allergies again, there's no question I'm going to take it. Like I'm, I'm, I bought like a little tiny, you know, sample pack from the gas station, but like, I'm totally going to get more of this stuff. And, you know, she just gets like freaked out about it. Like, then what she's if like I'm worried, like, like you're going to become addicted to Zyrtec or is that going to make you crazy? Yeah. yeah, it wasn't Zyrtec, whatever it was, you know, like it's a, it's, it's one of very few things that is actually on A's, you know, list of you can take this. It's not going to fuck you up, this, <laughs> right? um, which is a very tiny list. And, um, and I said to her like, uh, so you're afraid that I'm going to start pulverizing this stuff and sticking it in my jugular vein or smoking it because that's what people like me do. Um, like we've known each other for 45 years. Uh, I'm pretty sure that you know that I haven't had alcohol. Like uh, that, you know, I'm not smoking weed every day. Like I'm, none of these things are going on. And that I was fiercely loyal to heroin um, and opioids and that this wouldn't do the same thing for me because everything is different. Um, and she's just like, you know, I know that, but like, it's not, it's not a, you know, I'm your mother and whatever. And fear is irrational. And so like, you know, we look at, um, all of the, uh, you know, opioid crisis, you know, what do we do about this? And it's like, whatever, you know, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of overdose fatalities, um, which is, uh, you know, like in the 90% ish range are from illicit drugs, right? Our, our illicit drug supply is toxic. Um, I mean, if I, if I were to ask you, like, is toxic fentanyl analogs, or th- is that safer than pharmaceutical drugs, anything that's legal and regulated? Like, is any, is any legal regulated drug less safe than the fucking fentanyl that's killing 93% of people who overdose? No, it's not. Like, it's just not. Um, legal, le- like, cheese is legal and regulated so that you don't eat some non-pasteurized cheese and and die. You know, like that's why laws exist to keep us safe. But the drug laws make drugs like exponentially more dangerous. I mean, during prohibition, alcohol fatalities surged because you didn't know if you were drinking beer or, um, you know, methanol. And, uh, but people, including my mom, will say, you know, well, over accidental, it's accidental overdose. You fucked up. You weren't careful, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, okay, so my mom has, you know, a glass of wine with dinner. Um, what would happen if you drank two glasses of wine? I don't know. I'd probably be a little tipsy. Maybe I'd throw up. So what about 35 glasses of wine in one glass? Could you do that? Yeah, I would die. You didn't know the alcohol content. Like, right. It's like what a 13% alcohol content in wine or something like that. And it's, yeah. And you went and it wasn't regulated. So yeah, you ended up buying one that was 70%. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, right. So like hard seltzer is 2.9%. Grain alcohol is 99%, I think, or something like that. So it's like, you know, 30 something uh, hard seltzers in one can of hard seltzer. You know, potency is by volume. And, and I think we don't think about that. So like, if overdose is an overly potent dose, like that's what it is, it's too strong, and accidental means preventable, how do you prevent 
an overly, how do you even know that your dose is too potent if you don't know the potency of the dose? It's, it's impossible. Right. So like, you know, people die of, of alcohol overdose, you know, that, that certainly happens, but you're not going to, I mean, any idiot can be a bartender because you're pouring, you know, you know what you're pouring in the thing. You're not, you know, you're not serving a pint of, of death to somebody. And, and you know that we need safe injection sites be, with doctors because we don't know what we're putting in our bodies. There's no way to prevent overdose. So would less people die if they knew what they were putting in their body and they could prevent overdose? I would think yes, right? That would be safer? Probably. Definitely. There's no question. The reason that, that such few, that, that there are, um, the overdose fatalities are, are toxic are, are um, because of illicit drugs, that's why. The legal regulated drugs cause like minuscule amounts of overdoses because you know what you're putting in your body. They can still kill you, no question. Well, but especially when, yeah, you're running around town getting fake, <laughs> uh, whatever, right. which is harder to do these days. But yeah, like <laughs> fake prescriptions. That's what I was saying. Yeah. So you're like taking 50 times the amount you're supposed to be taking in one day. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, if you ask the average person, you know, should, should drugs be legal and regulated? They will tell you no. Right. Because they're drugs. They're dangerous. They shouldn't be legal and regulated. Drug users are bad people. Like whatever your reason is. You know, and, and usually it's more people will use drugs if drugs were legal and regulated, right? Like, yeah, definitely the whole world will be on drugs. If heroin and meth was legal, everybody would be on heroin and meth. Can you name anybody who would be using heroin and meth if they were legal? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that if heroin suddenly became legal, I would not be like, okay, it's my time to try. <laughs> right. so, oh, meth, yeah, so- I've heard those amazing stories about the people. <laughs> Like, I'm going to go try it. No. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so you know, and, and people, so the fear is um, if drugs were legal, more people would use them, and I don't want that. Legalization leads to widespread use, right? So, like, you know, the gas station that I go to, um, all, you know, they sell beer there also. Um, I don't see anybody filling their trunk with beer at the gas station because it's for sale, you know? We debunk these myths in our everyday regular life, not to mention the fact that like there's plenty of science to back it up. And also we know that it would be safer to use drugs than you know what's in the fucking drugs. And yes, yet absolutely. So so what prevents us from legalizing drugs is not um we our our irrational fear that legalization and regulation leads to widespread use, which we can all prove to ourselves is not true very easily. Um, that irrational fear is why 235 people are dying of overdose every day. And there's no other way to end this crisis. Arresting people and putting them in jail does not save lives. In fact, it actually makes it worse. You can definitely get drugs in jail. And when you have no tolerance, you are at the highest possible risk of overdose. So all of these opioid restrictions and, the, and you know, the DEA is making it so hard to uh, get these drugs. If you're in pain and you need painkillers, um, chances are you're, you're, uh, not going to be like, oh, well, I can't get my prescription opioids. So I guess my pain w- will just cure itself. I'm fine. No problem. No, you're going to go to the illicit markets, right. And you're going to die. And that's, what's going on here every day. And like, you know, my mom, um, you know, alcohol, sh- of course, alcohol should be illegal. It's alcohol and she drinks wine. Right. So why is it okay for my mom to be safe from drinking methanol in a glass of wine while my friends are dying? It's not, it's just not okay. 
um, we just we were so uh, people are so discriminatory against drug users that it's easy to justify that. Like, you know, I mean, I, my kids are uh, 11 and 15. I don't want them to use drugs. I've educated them plenty on drugs. Um, I'm aware that kids don't always listen. Right. I mean, they just don't. Or they so, purposely do what you tell them right. not to do. Right. <laughs> they got to figure so, it out on their own. Right. So I think, you know, if you ask the average parent, you know, do you want your kids to use drugs? Nobody's going to say yes. Right. Of course not. I mean, who's going to say yes to that? Nobody. Um, if your kids don't listen and they use drugs, would you prefer that they die or don't die? What's everybody going to say? Not die. Right. I mean, I would prefer that my kids don't die if they're going to use drugs. So one way to do that would be to, um, you know, have a supply of, of legal regulated drugs. And we're so worried that the whole world is going to start using heroin and meth legal, you know, loading up on beer in the gas station and all that, that we're, we're putting that, that is more, we're more horrified by that than the idea of, um, of all these people dying of overdose. And everybody, you know, like all of this, like uh, drug users are bad people and all that kind of business, like everybody only seems to know good people who use drugs. Like you never hear a story of like, I knew that guy was going to be a junkie from the minute I met him when he was, you know, five years old. Like he was just a bad, per like you're bad. People are bad before they start using drugs. Drugs don't make people bad people. Um, everybody knows all of these, you know, he was, he was a good kid. I don't know what was wrong. I had no idea. You know, he wasn't depressed, um, because we hide it. Right. Yeah. So, they're hurting or they're trying to fit in because they feel so unconfident or whatever, or like, yeah, it's whether they're, I feel like that there's either pain there that you're trying to escape yes. from, or you don't feel like you belong. Right. Even if so, you are cool or rich or popular or successful that you still don't feel like, oh, I don't know. You don't believe it or something. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, life is about choices. We do the best we can with what we have at the time, with the options that we have at the time. Right. So my options were suicide or heroin. I think I made the right choice. Um, you know, so so the expectation that like kids are going to just say no to drugs, like if you're desperately in pain and somebody offers you a painkiller, are you going to just say no? No, of course not. Um, you know, you're, that's, that's just how, and, and maybe you will, who knows, you know, but, but, um, you know, if we're, if we're not going to fix the problems that lead people to use drugs, is it too much to ask to protect them from fucking dying? Like, is that, is that so terrible? Yeah. It's, I've it's, lost a lot of people in my life to accidental overdoses and they, right. well, and some of them could have been intentional, but I, I think it was, yeah, they were pretty sure they were nearly all accidental and it sucks because yeah, they were beautiful, amazing people. And yeah, they were troubled. And right. yeah. So, I mean, the other thing is like the, the stigma um, comes in part from, from the laws and all of these myths that are not true. And it's harder to ask for help when you're, you can walk into the police station with a pile of drugs and be like, I need help. What, I mean, cops, they're not doctors. They're not qualified to treat to deal with drug issues. Anyway, they're they're they deal with crime. So we're criminalizing, we're putting, you know, the DEA can't keep the toxic drugs away. But they so like they can't stop that, but they stop you from accessing um, legal regulated safer drugs. They stop you from accessing methadone and buprenorphine. Um, so they really have triangulated the way to ensure that you're dead. Um, you know, with a hundred percent, uh, efficacy and, 
and we're going to jail? Like maybe the lawmakers whose job is to make the laws that exist to keep us safe uh, should be punished for, you know, this. I mean, it's, it's really, it's like, I understand why people think what they think, like the prevailing sentiment of, of, of drugs and laws and the drug war and all that kind of business. But like the war on drugs started in 1971. Um, drugs have been used by humans since before written language. They've, they've been around. I mean, we know that, right? Um, well, especially drugs, if you think about these days, all the like super wellness spiritual people are like, let me go here and take ayahuasca. Let me do the frog medicine. Let me like. We're not right. So like after 50 years of the war on drugs, We've spent, I mean, we've, we've, you know, lit a trillion dollars of cash on fire. Um, and I don't think that anybody can give you a reason that it's working. Like, it's clearly not working. Drugs are more powerful, accessible, cheaper. Like, there's, I mean, short of like a, a grenade flying out of a bag of drugs and killing you, um, they couldn't possibly be more dangerous. So, like, if you isolate the, you know, the variables and the constants, like we learned in elementary school, it's pretty obvious that like overdose fatalities are pretty steady for millennium, millennial. And, uh, and then in 1971, they started increasing and they just keep going up. I mean, gee, I, I can't imagine why that would be. I mean, like we, if you, um, we could like the people who hate or like, yes, drugs should be illegal. They're terrible. We, you know, this is all bad. Um, and I don't want to pay my tax dollars to help the junkies. Fuck that. Right. So like for the, and, and I don't want a methadone clinic in my neighborhood and I don't want a safe injection site. Those shooting galleries are such disgusting places for these scumbags, right? So um, if we were to legalize drugs and, and regulate them and tax them and sell them like alcohol, um, the $48 billion DEA budget to beat up the cartels, which they actually need to survive because what would the DEA do if the cartels didn't exist? Um, that $48 billion deficit annual spend would be a net swing of $106 billion. So we would pay less taxes. We would get money back. We could pay for all the treatment in the world. We could shut down every methadone clinic. We could shut down every safe injection site. There would be no need for any of this stuff. The cartels would be out of business because what are they going to do if drugs are legal? Like, you know, I mean, but we, so like the arguments for the status quo are actually the same arguments as as mine against, you know, um, people just don't realize that. And it's, it's interesting, like to have debates with somebody, like I, I asked somebody, um, to, uh, they, I mean, they said like, I'm, I'm crazy for saying this stuff and like, I have kids and how dare I and all like that. And, um, you know, they, they have ironclad reasons that, uh, that the, the drug war, um, you know, has to go on or whatever. So I, I asked them to like, you know, just write down, write down your reasons, like give me a, you know, write, write them down. I want to say this. So they're fine. You know, they write, write sit down. Um, and it, it worked out really well because I could use his reasons. I read them verbatim, um, with, in the, in the context of, you know, the actual facts and, um, and use those arguments against him. Like those are the very arguments that, that are why we need to do this. I mean, like we, we, we care more about shit that we, that isn't even real than about saving lives. Like I don't think there's anything more important than saving lives. We're just letting people die. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're, you know, what you're saying, it is a bit, it's a bit hard if you've never thought about it, you know, which I hadn't really to, to like go, what? No, you can't do that. But then, yeah, when, especially just even starting the talk with you and it's like, yeah, you, it's like remembering these are all like hurting humans. 
you know, that, yeah, it's not like, oh, these addicts and irresponsible people and scum of the earth or whatever. It's like, you know, like really just having compassion for our fellow humans in that, like, instead of like throwing away. And then, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, about, of course, all the people that I've lost and like, yeah, what you're saying, the stigma, it's even like they know that they're not in the best place and they need help. But then like, yeah, they're like alone. All these people had all the people I lost had accidental overdoses alone because then they can't. Yeah. Like the stigma of I'm using this and like, whatever, like I, so I get it what you're saying. And, um, I do want to jump back into your story of how you arrived here, but yeah, like, um, thank you for sharing all of that because yeah, it's like, it's things that we are just, yeah, we're so like, no, 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 this way and no unsafe and can't be legal. And then, yeah, when you really stop to think of it and it's like, yeah, it could be your kid, your nephew, your cousin, like these people that it's like, you know, individualizing the people that we just want to label as addicts or if you if you take drugs out of it if we were talking about anything else when something's dangerous we want we want to make it safer that's why we have gun locks bike helmets those little plastic doodads we put in electrical sockets like i had them when my kids were babies it didn't encourage them to electrocute themselves It, it it kept them safe and we're looking at everything as like this encourages drug use instead of this is keeping people safe i mean accidental means preventable it's over 100% of overdoses can be prevented. 0% are preventable with drug laws. Okay, so let's get back to, yeah, so you got out of that faith-based uh, rehab. And um, what did you end up doing? Because you said that, yeah, like up until, was yeah. it two years ago or whatever, like nobody knew. So you, everyone in your life thought you had it handled clean. And, but then you also mentioned, yes, being with the white shirt and... <laughs> Blood in there. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, did you end up like going back to using right away or what happened? Yeah. So, uh, right. So like, you know, the, the, the book starts just before um, rehab and then uh, I get out of rehab um, and to make a long story short, um, I went from one, like basically I, I didn't want to be addicted to a dangerous legal substance. So I cobbled together stretches of sobriety for as long as I could, but it's like, you know, if you have chronic back pain, and you have a flare-up, you're going to call your doctor and be like, yo, I need the Vicodin. Um, so that wasn't accessible to me, and uh, heroin was. So, um, you know, I, I went, I mean, the next um, 13 years, um, I was sober much more than I was um, using drugs, like by a very wide margin. Um, like years went by at a time, but I was so um, depressed that like, you know, I couldn't get out of bed when, um, when I wasn't using drugs, like the advertising agency, I, I lived in New York city. Um, so I was, on, I was on heroin for, you know, most of that. And I moved, um, I felt like I have to just get away from the heroin. That's my problem. You know, this is a geographic cure. And I couldn't, I like, I just, I didn't know what to do. Um, so I, you know, went back and forth for a very long time, hit it very well. Um, I got married, uh, we had, you know, my daughter was, was born. Um, and you know, from the minute I met her, um, like there was no way that I was ever going to use drugs again. Like, how could I possibly do that? You know, she's the most important person in the world. The problem though, is that like, um, you can't, you know, wanting something doesn't make it happen. Right. So like I I fell into this very dark black hole of, of depression. And, you know, I, I had this thought, um, that was just awful when I was like 32 that, um, if I killed myself, 
everybody would sympathize with, with Andrew and Ruby, you know, I mean, like it, it would be awful. I mean, they might think I'm an asshole for killing myself, but most people would be like, Oh my God, that's so tragic. Right. If I went in and got some heroin to avoid killing myself, it would be an entirely different perception. I'd still be alive, but that wouldn't matter because, you know, who is this guy? Like he's on, he's on heroin. Like that's awful. Um, so, uh, so I, I ended up, um, getting on, on buprenorphine, which I'd actually known about from Rob told me about buprenorphine before I even tried heroin for the first time. Um, and is that and, a drug that is, is meant to be a prescription? Like, were you prescribed? Is it a prescription drug or were you getting that illegally? No, yeah, it's, yes. It's, it's a prescription. Um, it's medically assisted treatment. So buprenorphine and methadone, the difference is methadone is a full, uh, opioid agonist, which is like, um, all the other opioids, like other than buprenorphine, every opioid is like uh, methadone. It's just a difference in potency, you know. Um, Which like, so highly addictive, right? They're 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 all the same amount of it. You know, it's like saying like, well, beer isn't addictive, but whiskey is. Like whiskey is stronger than beer, you know. So like, codeine is to Vicodin, is to heroin, is to fentanyl, as um, you know, uh, hard seltzer is to wine, is to you know, whiskey is to green alcohol. Um, so, uh, so they're all just as, as addictive. The buprenorphine is a partial agonist, so it doesn't fill your receptors, um, the same. And, uh, I mean, basically it's like, you know, if your opiate receptors multiply with every dose, then like the amount of opiate receptors I had before I tried heroin for the first time, like that was as happy as I was ever going to be. Right. So over the years, as I got more, uh, you know, receptors, they all needed to be saturated in order to achieve that same level of, you know, baseline. So I, you know, I understood that. Um, and also there's, you know, I mean, it's been proven time and time again that like, you know, significant dysfunctional activity um, in your, you know, reward processing system and, and um, you know, emotional well-being and all these things are, 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 you know, just fucked forever after, after you quit using opioids. And it's, it's not a case of like, you know, the people that are like, Oh, you know, nobody drank more beer than me. And you know, that kind of business, like, it's not a question of tolerance or how long you're using it. Like everybody's brain is different. Our, our, you know, chemistry is, is different. So I just, I knew that I needed to be, I needed a warm blanket on my opiate receptors. And, um, otherwise I felt like, you know, I'm like thrashing and splashing in the middle of the ocean. And like, I, I just focusing on not drowning. Um, so buprenorphine, um, I mean, it, it like it doesn't just save lives. Like it, it gives you your life. Like you're not you're not just you know uh, struggling to survive. Like you can live now. It's a fucking rowboat when you're in the middle of the ocean. You know. Um, so so I, I got on that legally. I have a, I, you know I got a prescription. I have a prescription. I and is that a like a prescription you get from like a primary a therapist or psychotherapist? No. Like no. no. Um, I'm happy you asked. Uh, so uh, any any DEA licensed doctor, which is you know, every doctor, right? They can prescribe any opioids they want. So like they could they could give you you know lethal amounts of morphine, no problem. Um, only seven percent of U.S. physicians are licensed to prescribe buprenorphine hmm. with the special X waiver, right? So like they could kill you a thousand times over, but they can't save your life. So why, yeah, why, why is that? I think it's probably, come on, David, do you know the answer? (laughs) 
I do. I mean, think about methadone clinics, right? I mean, methadone is safer than any illicit opioid. Any legal regulated opioid is safer than any illicit opioid. Like there's not, you can't argue with that. Like it's just a fact. And everybody knows that. But we make you go to a methadone clinic every day and pee in a cup and then we'll give you your dose. And you're so lucky to be here, you goddamn junkie and all that kind of business. Um, methadone, if, if your doctor was like, you know what, methadone is actually the right way to treat your uh, you know, knee surgery, post-op pain, I'm going to write you a prescription. You go fill it at the drugstore, no problem, right? So your methadone at the drugstore is the same as my methadone at the methadone clinic. But I have to go to the methadone clinic every day. And you can just take your, your methadone at home. So buprenorphine is very similar. Like you can get a, you can get a 30 day, you know, prescription, not a problem. Um, but it's more tightly regulated because only the junkies are taking it. And, you know, God forbid we should make anything easy for like, if, you know, I mean, uh, the illicit, like you can, my mind is so, I'm so confused. It's like, You can, like, right now... Why would you um, not want to help people with addiction? I don't get it. I mean, you know, think, think about this. Like, um, if you had, you know, uh, unlimited ref- uh, unlimited money, right? All the money in the world, all the time in the world. Um, you don't even... You just need 10 bucks in a computer, and you can get um, toxic drugs delivered to your home or any address in the United States in less than 24 hours. Not a problem, right? You can't find a buprenorphine doctor in 24 hours, if at all you definitely not getting into a methadone clinic in 24 hours. And if you can get buprenorphine or methadone, you're, there's, you, know, you can order the drugs and have them delivered to your house every day, or you can go to the clinic every day, or you can go to the drugstore and be stigmatized and doctor and stigmatized and all of this kind of stuff. It's like, if we really wanted to save lives and, and help people recover, we would make this shit, it, like it's a national health emergency isn't going to be resolved if the antidotes are, uh, you know, criminalized and stigmatized and restricted. Like that's, that just doesn't make sense. And we know that like if the COVID vaccine was like, no, you, you can't, you have to like drive to Kalamazoo and you can get it on this day. And like, you know, you have to pee in a cup first and we're going to, you know, shame you. It's this much money. Like, yeah. Yeah. And all of, you know, like the people who are so against, um, you know, methadone clinics and all that kind of stuff, like, you know, I don't want a methadone clinic in my neighborhood either. Like it's very easy to shut them all down. Just, let us get the method out of the fucking drugstore. So, um, so I was very ashamed of the buprenorphine for, um, you know, in the beginning. I mean, I, I, I tried to tell my wife about it. You know, she still didn't know any of this stuff. And I, I ended up like practicing on the night on the way home from work a, a bunch. And like I, I eventually told her that I was on buprenorphine. Um, it's a, a great medication to prevent migraines. Why were you ashamed? Because is that fee- is it like I feel failed. And so I'm using this drug. Like, where does the shame come from? Think about it. I mean, I'm, um, I was 32 when I started using, uh, buprenorphine, right. You know, it, it, it's safe. It saves lives. Like it can't kill you. There's no tolerance. It has a ceiling. Like, you know, that's just how it is. Um, so if I, if I told, if I'm 32 and I tell you like, oh yeah, remember, um, I'm on buprenorphine so that I won't use heroin. I mean, you get very sick if you put any opioids in your body well, you're on buprenorphine. Um, so, um, so I, I think my wife would be like, well, wait a minute, you've been sober for, um, you know, uh, 14 years. What do you need that stuff for? And you were on heroin for like, my story changed from like six months to a couple of years, you know, from when so I was the 16. The shame so. was because nobody knew your whole story. So it would have been oh, like, 
oh, I've been clean for 14 years or whatever. Yeah, I just feel like using buprenorphine because I've been clean for 14 years and my addiction is completely in check. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, to me, that feels like, again, it's more because of the stigma of it. Cause you know, it's like really like how amazing, even if that was your true story that you had gotten clean, you've been clean this entire time. And now maybe you're feeling like a little, like you're starting to want this again and whatever. So to be safe and make the best choices for yourself and your family, you're taking this drug. Right. And everybody would be, um, you know, I mean, if I were to like, if you're my family and I say, um, I've been clean for 14 years, I'm totally sober, everything's great, except I feel like I might want to use heroin again, so I'm going to take this stuff. You're going to worry that I'm going to be on heroin in five minutes and you wouldn't want that. Um, so, I, I, you know, I was super ashamed. And I mean, I, you know, it, it reached a point where I'd been on it for 10 years um, and I was just so overwhelmed with with guilt and shame. I mean, you know, look, like, whether you're on the side of like, it's a disease, it's not your fault and you're not responsible and all that kind of, you know, oh, you poor baby side of things. I've still lied to my wife for 18 years or for, you know, we, we got married when we were um, just, bef- you know, I, it was, I was 30, right? Um, or 29, 29. So, uh, you know, and we'd known each other for a long time, um, you know, since then. So after 10 years of buprenorphine, we've been together um, for, uh, you know, 18 years. And I thought, you know, why wouldn't she kick me out? Why wouldn't she want to take the kids away from me? Like, why, you know, I, I couldn't think of a reason that, that this was going to go well for me. But like the opioid crisis was starting to occupy more and more uh, newspaper headlines. And there was so much misinformation. And I knew that I wasn't the exception. And I knew that buprenorphine worked. And everybody's telling you to go to an AA meeting. And that's the only way you're going to live. Um and I lost so many friends to overdose and hadn't even grieved because I couldn't tell anybody about it. And I, I, I couldn't keep my mouth shut. I mean, I, I had to do something. Um, you know, like my, um, like I was sabotaging the changes that I wanted to see in the world in silence. Like my silence was working against me because if I'm waiting for somebody else to come out and say, hey, I'm a normal person, I'm on, I, I was using heroin and here's why. If I'm waiting for that, everybody else is waiting too. And all of the, you know, drug memoirs, they're, they're all like, I, I, you know, I was fucked up and then I found God and I'm sober now and this is the only way to do it. And I just like, I, I, so I wrote this book with the idea that like, I'm going to give it to my wife and this will explain everything, <laughs> you know? Wait, so um, you're saying you wrote the book before you told her? Like you were like starting to be like, I need to be honest about why I've been taking this medication for years. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, so it was for her. Yeah. Um, and she was just couldn't have been more gracious and compassionate and understanding. Um, and from there, uh, you know, I, I told a few people here and there and you know, don't tell anybody. And, and it was like very, very secretive. And then the article, um, I, I, you know, the, the LA Times article was about to come out. I told my mom, once my mom knew, like the, the gates were open. Um, and, you know, the whole time, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm in private equity. I'm a guy in a suit and tie every day. Like, I'm, you know, nobody has any idea about my past or, you know, what I'm up to, um, what I've been up to. And, um, and as it started coming out, like, it just, it, you know, everything, I mean, you know, I'm, I haven't worked in, I haven't had a job in, uh, you know, three years at this point or, or you know, since, that started um, 
to happen. And, uh, and I found that like, you know, I, I went, I was like invited to speak places and, and people were interested in what I had to say. And like, it just, it really, um, it became its own thing. And like, I, I found, um, a literary agent, uh, and you know, I mean, it, like you, the stories that I, I had heard that I was so afraid of, of like, you know, you get a thousand million rejection letters and all this bad stuff happens and all like that. Like I, I got the exact literary agent that I wanted. Um, I sold the book to the first publisher, um, I talked to, uh, they made an offer, you know, like they were, they were interested, you know, like in, very quickly. Um, it's a, it's a national conversation. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I always feel like a douchebag for saying this, but like, um, you know, every book is like, oh, it's different and it's better. And, you know, there's never been anything like this before, but like there, there really isn't anything like this. Um, they all follow the same model. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm showing you, uh, addiction as a symptom and you see why sobriety doesn't just make everything better. I mean, like if you have, you know, like the, the OCD people with the, like you turn the doorknob 77 times, your cat's going to die. Um, if you stop turning the doorknob, you're sober, you're abstinent, you're abstaining from the behavior, but you still want to turn the doorknob and you still think your cat's going to die. We've got to figure out, we've got to treat the underlying condition because, you know, sobriety is just not, um, all by itself. It's, it's not a cure. I mean, you know, your, your physical addiction to drug, to whatever it is that you're on, um, ends when you get sober, right? Like you, you're an alcoholic, you stop drinking alcohol a week later, you're no longer addicted to alcohol, but you still want to drink. Stimulants, you know, the entire stimulant category, whether it's cocaine or meth or whatever, those have no physical addiction. So like sobriety is no different than, you know, whatever. Um, but we have this idea, you know, AA is very, very against medically assisted treatment. A lot of people will say, you know, oh, buprenorphine is just as bad as heroin. I mean, you know, look, ask for buprenorphine after your next hip replacement surgery and let me know how that works out for you, because I promise you're going to be miserable. Um, you know, but, um, but that's what we think. And so like, I, you know, I, Sobriety was never my objective. Like I wanted to feel safe in my own skin. Um, so I don't really care if this invalidates my sobriety, which is what they would tell you. You know, he's not sober. He's on drugs. Um, and, you know, like last last year, um, I was, uh, you know, that show, uh, The Doctors on uh, CBS. I was, I was on The Doctors and um, they said, you know, well, you've been on the buprenorphine for such a long time, like your addiction is clear in check, you know, when are you going to stop taking it, whatever. And it's like, if I, I said, um, if I was diabetic, would you ask me when I'm going to stop taking that life-saving insulin because my diabetes is in check? No, I mean, nobody would ask that. My addiction is in check because I'm taking this stuff. I it's mean, you started by telling us at the age of four, how sad you were. So it's like, to me, it is, it feels like an impossible, like, I'm so, I acknowledge you for making that, making that choice and staying on it and now sharing your story because yeah, like, again, I've lost so many people to accidental addiction. And if there was something that, yeah, I could be like, you could just take this and you could take it for like, I don't know if you can take it every day for the rest of your life, but why not? Because instead of going through like whatever you're going through on the inside and like, of course, like you had tried, you know, like, I don't know if you're still in therapy or if you ever, but that it's just like, it sounded like you were trying things even like from a kid and it's just, yeah. Huh. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't begin to recover without buprenorphine. I mean, when you're splashing around in the middle of the ocean, 
you can't think about healing your wounds. Yeah. I mean, the buprenorphine to right. To even like really dive in and look at, but also, yeah, I mean, it's at, at four, just like going back to there. And, and, you know, like we think that, that you can't take this stuff for, you know, any kind of thought of that, like alcohol shuts down all of your organs, opioids don't. They're, they can shut down your central nervous system. That's the damage that they can do. Like that's the extent of it. We, we think that it's so much more, it's not. So if you're, you could take pharmaceutical heroin every day for the rest of your life and be perfectly fine, as long as you don't take too potent of a dose um, to shut down your central nervous system. Buprenorphine is totally fine. I can take it every, I mean, look, I would love to not have to take something every day. Um, but I was also like a diabetic. I'm sure would love to not have to. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I would love to not need glasses. Um, but my eyesight sucks and it's, it's a life changer. And it's like, you know, if, if you're not going to shame me for wearing glasses, then, you know, don't, don't ask me to, uh, get up your burping. But you know, my mom was like, um, I, I, I wish you could have just found an antidepressant that worked because, you know, you don't want to be on buprenorphine for the rest of your life and, and, and all like that. And, and I was just like, you know what? I mean, I, I actually found an antidepressant that was effective. Um, you know, well, why, why did why did you stop taking it? Like, were you, um, did you forget to take it every day? Cause I would have called you every day. If you would have told me, like, I would have reminded you, I would have made sure you took it. No, I, I took it. I took it every day. Then I don't understand why you're on the buprenorphine. Why don't you get that antidepressant again? Like you're out of your mind if you don't do that. Um, and so I told her the antidepressant, uh, that it was heroin and she was just like, you know, completely aghast. And she was, you know, like, I have such a problem with that. And I don't know why you would even say that and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, you know, you don't actually have a problem with heroin. You have a problem with the way that it's spelled and pronounced. Because if I would have said Prozac, you would have been very happy right now. You like what heroin does. You don't like what it's called. And it's the same with buprenorphine. Yeah. Okay. I know we got to wrap this up because you have a thing. But yeah, I also just want to bring up, you know, I am hoping that there's more rehab places these days that are not just the faith and Mm. whatever. And like, yeah, I don't believe that there's a one size fits all for anything, whether it's in a, you know, addiction, struggle, emotional, whatever. So I do know people that have done a, and that's been their thing. I know a lot of people that have struggled with addiction and that wasn't their thing. And, yeah. you know, and that and it's just like, I'm just all for people finding what helps them. And you're not hurting other people. And like, yeah, so you're on something that is, you are able to live a life. You're going to work. You're being, you well, know, showing up I mean, you know, as a like, father, husband. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's really, and, and I, you know, I feel the same. Like I, I, I realize that I, you know, do a lot of bashing of the, of the faith and abstinence programs, but um, I know a lot of people who AA, the people that I know who AA works for are alcoholics. Um, Same. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, my but friend. But all who, alcoholics. Yes. Like, cause I. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's fine. Like I'm all for anything that works for you, but I think, you know, there's something to be said for like the, the, if you're like an alcoholic and you get into bar fights and you beat up your wife and you're driving your car into a tree and you're like that kind of alcoholic, then the like making amends to people you've harmed because you drove into their tree and beat up, you know, in a bar fight and all that, you know, that I understand, uh, you know, why that, how that works and, and, and why that becomes more appealing. But like, you don't hear, you know, people don't smoke pot and get into a bar fight. Um, you know, and, and so it's just, it's back to that. Like everybody is different. Every substance is different. Like you find the thing that works for you and you do it. And, 
And if anybody thinks that's not good, then fuck you. I mean, you know, this works for me. So, um, Oh, and last question, because you did, you said it was like only 7% of doctors are able to diagnose this. So if if somebody was out there struggling or somebody listening knows somebody, how do you even go about like trying to see, like find that? Like who would they give them, talk? Give them my email address. What? Give them your yeah. email address. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm totally serious. If you're listening, <laughs> look up David, contact me and I'll give, give you his email yeah. address. My, my, my website, you can send a thing to my... My website has a contact form. Um, you okay, can find me on great. social media, but it's, you know, people, I mean, I, I hear from last week, I heard from like 13 people who were looking for help. And the, you know, it's like, there's a million and a half physicians in the United States of that million and a half, 1183 are certified in addiction medicine and over 20 million people are struggling with addiction. So there's one doctor for every 18,875 people who need help. Um, and meanwhile, like, you know, the most obscure form of toenail fungus, there's probably 16 specialists in your town. Um, so strangers are banging down my door because they don't know what to do. Well, I'm glad mm. that you are there sharing, sharing your story and willing to help people like this and trying to also, yeah, like change the stigma of it. I mean, this is why I'm alive. Like for the longest time, I didn't know why I lived with my friends hadn't. And, um, I really, you know, I mean, I, like, I don't get paid for this. I don't get like, I have no, uh, there, there's, there's nothing, you know, going on behind the scenes. Like I just, I, I have to give back. Like I just, I just have to, um, I feel like this is so, this, this saved me, the buprenorphine saved me. And, um, and you know, I mean, like I'm, I'm, I, I, I would help anybody if I give you buprenorphine. The problem is if you can't get buprenorphine and I give it to you, I will obviously have, uh, you know, you will have avoided using fentanyl that could have killed you, right? But we're both going to jail because it's illegal. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm just going to ask you a question I ask everybody. The name of the podcast is Claim It because I feel so often we are chasing like the feelings of, oh, once I do this, I'll be enough, successful, worthy, fulfilled, have this job, have this much money, whatever it is. And usually we're just constantly chasing it. And so the work is to try to see that you can claim that at any time. But we see that's very challenging to claim I'm enough right now. I'm worthy right now. But just to even like imagine that it is possible right now. What are you claiming for yourself right now? Um, I would, I would love to believe the things that I hear people saying about me. I mean, just like, you know, the, 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 like I, these blurbs for my book from like these people that I've admired for so long and I can't believe that they know who I am and that they're saying these things about me. Like, I, I, I wish that it was like, of course they're saying that or it, it, the emails that the parents that I hear from, like any of the good stuff, I wish that I believed it. Or I wish I could like, you know, know that, not doubt it. You know. What okay. I mean? How about since I wanted to claim it, say I claim that what these people are saying to me is a possibility. <laughs> I'll take that. Because right. it will... doesn't make you be like it is the truth. Okay. It's like I open. Mean, yeah, like, yeah. I I I've reluctantly accepted that. Um, you know, maybe I'm not a terrible writer. Uh, but um, you know, yeah, I I I claim that it's entirely possible that these, you know, facts that I'm hearing are true. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to that episode. I think it was such a great conversation. Um, interesting to hear 
you know, about those ideas on legalizing drugs. It's something that, yeah, my initial reaction is like, what? No. But I actually, you know, I was like, I don't know, actually, this might be something to really think about. And again, I've had friends that have struggled, <laughs> that I've lost. And um, yeah, I'd do anything to have them kick back and on this planet and spreading their amazing spirits, um, even if that meant you know, not even like, I think it's great that he has found something that allows him to be alive in the world and not just be walking the earth depressed, but actually be alive in the world. So if you want to, you know, if you do know somebody struggling, uh, yeah, he said, go ahead. You can find his email on his, um, or reach out to the contact on his website, which is davidposes.com. I'll have the link in the show notes, full show notes at yourjoyologist.com backslash podcast. You'll find all the episodes there. You can find all things me at yourjoyologist.com. And I'm at underscore Trisha Huffman on social media at claimant podcast at yourjoyologist. I'm all over the place these days. Thank you for listening. As always, I'd love to hear from you to let you to let me know you're listening, why you're listening. My guests always love hearing from you. Um, you know, share the episode, send us DMs, let us know what you're thinking, what you're feeling. And again, if you also have any questions about the CBD company, My Soul CBD, send me an email. Go to my soul CBD com backslash claim it to check out their products and get 15% off. All right. What are you claiming right now? And as you can see with David, sometimes it's like, where can you work to like leave a possibility to claim something? <laughs>